we had a joint venture. We rented a large apartment, it was our office, and we had a mixed staff of Russians and Americans. One of the people who worked for us had been the head of the space agency for the CMEA. So lunchtime comes, there was a jet engine was sitting in the courtyard. No one knew how the jet engine got there. And he went out at lunchtime and stripped out the titanium. <laughs> and I remember him walking him in, yeah, yeah. Him in, in his yeah. coat. Oh, wow. You know, it was just, to me, emblematic of, of like, the times. the times. Hey, this is Matt. Today, I was joined by my colleague, our new co-host and fellow graduate student, Cullen. We talked with Dan Satinsky, who is an associate at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. And we talked about his new book, which is called Hammer and Silicon, which is all about the stories of people who left the Soviet Union and Russia and became successful. So a lot of interesting stuff. I think you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hello, you're listening to The Slavic Connection. Today we have Dan Satinsky. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. We just heard your wonderful talk about Hammer and Silicon, but I actually want to get to that at the very end. Sure. I think it'll be really interesting for our listeners if we start out by just kind of talking about how you ended up getting interested really in the whole region in, I guess, what was the Soviet Union at that time, and then how that kind of developed over the course of your career. Sure. Um, it's a, it's not an easy question to answer. I think that um, I grew up at the period of the Cold War, and I remember um, that we had drills in grade school where we got under our desk and held our hands over the back of our neck in case a nuclear bomb went off in the schoolyard. So um, the Soviet Union was this uh, looming presence for many, many years. In... Uh, about in 1984, they, I received a circular for that there was a tour available for lawyers to go to the Soviet Union. And I thought, wow, I want to go and see what it looks like. And um, I went with a friend of mine. It was a uh, interest trip. And we went to then Leningrad, Moscow, um, Minsk, and Kiev. And I, I have to tell you, at that time, I had no idea that there were even colors in the Soviet Union. The images of everything were black and white and grim. Wow. And it changed my perception of the place by going there. Later, um, and, and I was a practicing attorney at the time, mm -hmm. and later I got bored with being an attorney and I wanted to get involved more with international relations and went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy right at the time when Perestroika was in full swing. So it sort of naturally led me um, to, to, to look at what were the opportunities that were now emerging in the Soviet Union then right. uh, from uh, the perestroika reforms. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's really where it begins. And, and did you immediately have this idea that you wanted to be connected with business and enterprise or was that not necessarily clear? Um, I, yeah, it was pretty clear that I wanted to be involved with business. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the Fletcher, I started studying Russian while I was at Fletcher and I went, uh, I went, 
to uh, St. Petersburg to study Russian and met people there and everybody was talking about business. It was the way to be practically involved and I wanted to be practically involved. I wasn't on a track to being an academic at that point. Sure. And then it's 1991 and Perestroika has run its course and I, you know, see on your your CV that you wind up at a place called AJ Ventures doing something as interesting as importing rare earth minerals from Russia. How did you wind up there and what was it oh, like okay. to do something like that? Right. So um, it was at, at the time I graduated from the Fletcher School, I went to a, a talk by uh, uh, Arnold Friedman, who was one of it was the A of AJ Ventures, and he talked about the business they were doing, bringing in rare earth oxides. I went up to him afterwards and said, um, "Do you know anybody that's hiring?" And he said, "Yeah, me." <laughs> and uh, his only question was whether I drank because he was a recovering alcoholic, and since I, I didn't, I mean, uh-huh. didn't in any significant right. way, I, he hired me, and uh, it was a very interesting business because the ruble was not. Uh, convertible at that time. And so what he and his partner were doing was buying uh, audio and video cassettes in um, Hong Kong, shipping them to Vladivostok, selling them for rubles, buying the rare earth oxides for rubles from the uh, Russian Atomic Energy uh, Ministry. Um, Because the rare earth oxides were a byproduct of the nuclear materials Mm -hmm. that they were creating. And then we imported them into the U.S., um, mostly yttrium oxide, which is used in cubic zirconium. Mm -hmm. And some of the other oxides are used in other high-tech materials. And so we'd sell them for dollars and then repeat the circuit. It was an elaborate way of converting the currency and uh, circulating this these rare earth oxides until the Chinese blew us out of the water and because they sold at prices Russians wouldn't sell at. And now the Chinese have a world monopoly on these uh, materials. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting uh, early um, early venture. I, I remember the communications were so bad. Um, we would, I remember sitting at a fax machine punching the redial button for two hours to send a fax (laughs) Uh to our staff person in Moscow. Yeah. And so you kind of were doing several things related to business in Russia in the 1990s. Yeah. But then at a certain point, you wound up uh, back in the United States. Well, I I never lived in Russia during that period. I traveled back and forth. Oh, okay. We we had uh, a Russian staff. Uh, and he was, you know, he, he was there permanently. And so I traveled back and forth, um, during that period a lot, Uh but, but traveling. Uh, and then, you know, I see that you've have been involved with the U S Russia chamber of commerce of new England for quite a long time. Right. When did that organization get started and what kind of role did you play in it and why did you what, what drew you to it? Okay. Well, um, the U.S.-Russia Chamber of Commerce was founded in around 1988 or 1989. Okay. It was founded by um, a guy who saw the best way to bring peace between the U.S. and Russia was to have business relations. Sure. And so I didn't f- found it. He founded it. Um, he's an interesting character at a certain point. Uh, business 
prospects began to grow during the 80s, I started attending the meeting. So I was a member of the organization. And um, they, a board of directors was formed and formalized the organization. And they decided they needed a new um, executive director and they offered me the position. Um, and because I was not uh, living in Russia, but I was traveling back and forth. Mm -hmm. It sort of fit my combination of right. uh, activities, right. and so I, I took it. I took it on as a uh, as the executive director, which was a kind of a part time position. Okay. okay. And is it so? We're not. I know that there's a, for example, in Russia, there's an organization called AmCham, right. which is the American Chamber of Commerce in Russia. This right. is the the inverse of that. It, it is. Way. It is, uh, and it was. Um, specific to New England. Okay. Okay. So we brought delegations of Russians uh, to uh, the U.S. We were instrumental in bringing some of the first uh, Russian software outsourcing companies to New England oh, right. um, and uh, developing um, collaboration with technology associations in New England and Russian um, organizations. So we did similar work, but it was, we were kind of a bridge between the business community and uh, New England and um, appropriate, you know, Russians, I mean, Russian organizations. I mean, if someone wanted to build cars, they weren't, our, they didn't right. fit within yeah, a profile of New yeah. England. So New England profile is a high technology. So that's where we gravitated towards. Sure. And so you're, this organization, I guess, started out as regional. I know yeah. that there's, I'm from Houston and there's, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, yeah. but there's a similar organization in Houston and probably one in Silicon right. Valley and so on. There, all those organizations are founded usually around individuals and they're all local. Okay. And so there's usually a very strong person. So there's one in Philadelphia, there's the one in Houston, yeah. there was one in Chicago pretty much tied to an individual who had their own reasons for, sure. you know, Wanting, developing yeah. this organization. And then they found support in the local business community. Right. So. I guess this would be a good place maybe for me to jump in. I'm from New England originally. So oh, okay, good. Yeah. Interested in this aspect of it. Uh, so you say that they're founded by individuals. Then does yeah. that tend to lend to multiple ones in similar regions for different industries? Or is there an effort to diversify among well, these regional operations? Yeah, they, they are, there were... There were never a national. There's a national organization called the U.S. Russia Business Council, right. which is uh, in Washington D.C. But the other regional organizations are not affiliated. We we had working relationships with the U.S. RBC. We sometimes worked with the group in Philadelphia, but not often. We never had any official relationship with the group in Houston. Um, there is a, a, an association of Russian technology people in California called AMBAR um, that we uh, did, we collaborated with for different purposes, but not, um, there was no national organization. Um, U.S.-Russia Business Council is made up of multinationals, ma excuse me, multinationals, and they do lobbying and a lot of legislative work, and they're Washington-centered. Um, okay. And so. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested by, so you, you've 
recently done this book, Hammer and Silicon. But right. the other kind of thing going on is you're you're involved in business. You're you're a consultant, right? right. And so I see these kind of two assault consulting. Uh, initiatives that you've been that you've been a part of, I guess the BEA, BEA Associates, right. which has a quite a long history, it appears. And then also this Russia Innovation, uh, uh, Russia Innovation, which collaborative. was a, sh- a short of, a shorter right um, initiative. What what you know? What does it mean to be a con- consultant in, in that sense? What do you what do you do? <laughs> what do we do? Right. Okay. So let's let's say with uh, Russia Innovation Collaborative. Yeah. So. Um, I'll give you uh, an example. So we we worked with the Perm Regional Government mm-hmm. to uh, evaluate their uh, ecosystem for innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the many of the Russian regions were interested in improving sure. their technology innovation ecosystems because we came from Boston, which is a highly developed ecosystem. Um, I, uh, my partners and I had a lot of experience and expertise to help them. So we went to Perm. We went there many times, developed a plan for them as to how to support uh, local um, entrepreneurs and encourage the development of entrepreneurs and to look at, well, what institutional support was there and what institutional institutional support was lacking that they needed to compensate for. Um, In most Russian regions, particularly at that time, there wasn't much angel capital. Um, There was uh, often not many networking opportunities of things that were exist in a more developed uh, area. So we would make recommendations. We made a report and recommendations to the Perm Regional Administration. they did some of them, and some of them they didn't. Right. Um, we also were involved with uh, trying to find partners for Russian startups from Novosibirsk and Tomsk right. um, to uh, find opportunities for them in mm-hmm. in the in the U.S. So the consulting was basically trying to be a bridge between, between right. business practices and standards in the U.S. and sort of emerging innovation in um, in, in Russia. And am I correct that you were also involved with the, the Skolkova project, which was a, a highly publicized and pretty right. large pro- uh, uh, project? I mean, what was that kind of partnership like? Um, so with the Skolkova, I worked for the Skolkova Foundation uh, as they were negotiating with MIT to establish a new university. It's called Skoltech, which is, is established. Um, the relationship with MIT is over. Um, I was involved with it at a planning stage in which the Russian side didn't have the expertise to evaluate what MIT was telling them. Mm-hmm. And so they were felt that they needed more expertise to help negotiate because otherwise they were at the mercy of MIT mm-hmm. and MIT dictating what um, what they would deliver and how and and helping uh, to interpret f- to the Russian side what it is that MIT was telling them about the innovation uh, system that they were trying to set up. So mm-hmm. that's that's what that's what I did. Sure. And does your the work at B- BEA is it substantially different, kind of from the kind no, of stuff? no, not really. I mean, uh, so BEA um, 
well, here's the story on BEA. What in uh, in 1990, uh, I took a delegation um, from Boston, from Boston City Government, uh, and from Northeastern Law School to Central Asia to Tashkent to uh, do a three-day seminar on how local government works in a market economy. Wow. We we gave the seminar in Tashkent, and then we went to Yaroslavl in Russia and did the same thing. And people were interested in, well, how can we work together? What, what can, how can we, you know, continue this? And I needed a corporate form in which to do the work. So BEA is Boston, Europe, Asia. And I just formed a company and used it as necessary uh, to work with different clients to help with business development. I'm interested. You wrote you, you wrote a paper in 2014, I believe, about kind of the innovation climate right. in in Russia. I'm wondering, you know, you look at a project like Skolkova, and something I hear very often is that it, there, there's kind of this idea that it hasn't been as successful as people were were hoping it would be, and and so on and so forth. What's your perception for how the innovation climate in Russia has changed over let's let's say the past yeah. 10, 10 years. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's changed a lot. I think that there was a period in which the Russians wanted to emulate what was being done in Silicon Valley or Boston or Austin mm-hmm. and um, to do something very similar to replicate that on yeah. Russian soil. It didn't work, mm-hmm. didn't take, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and so the the Russians are still very much interested in in encouraging development of technology and science, but it's done differently. Yeah. And so I think the emphasis is more on larger institutions, um, uh, big companies. Uh, the environments for small companies is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't always great, but we always had the illusion that it was going to change, that somehow the large companies would come to rely on small companies for innovation, Mm -hmm. but that hasn't happened. And I think that older institutions like the Russian Academy of Sciences and other universities have uh, strengthened their connection to the government and government funds. And so instead of funding uh, experiments with trying to have lots of startups all over the place. Right. The there's a almost a return to a historical patterns um, established, you know, pretty much under Soviet times right. of large institutions and scientific institutions that were funded by the state being right. the generators of new technology right. based on demands mainly from the state. Um, you know, there's because of the monopolies in many areas uh, and the isolation of Russian companies from international markets and competitors, there's less of a demand for cutting edge technology mm-hmm. because there's always cost to, to cutting edge technologies. You have to do things differently. Right. You have to train people. You have to change your supply chains there's a resistance to that kind of change. And if you're not pushed to it, you right. don't do it. Right. So, you know, it's not that everything is 
stagnating and inefficient. It's it's that it's being done very differently. And I think uh, that probably the Chinese model of a sort of state-sponsored um, technology change is much more palatable to the Russians at right. this point. Interesting. What's interesting to me about that is that I don't know if you have you ever been to, for example, the Saint Petersburg Economic Forum, but I, I've seen some videos from it, and every year, the people from some of these large organizations that you mentioned give these speeches about how you know we need this really cool, innovative Silicon right. Valley like uh, right. kind of future, but then it's and it, but none of it really ever gets acted upon. But on the but on the other hand, it's kind of these these signals that that they want this. To, to happen, I mean, going forward, do you, are you optimistic about the innovation climate being able to change, say, in, in the next 10 years? Well, I'm not I'm optimistic that they're going to um, follow our model. Okay. That, that I think, is not going to happen. That, that, that was a dream that had a possibility that is R probably gone now. Right. And it's a dream that you have to, I think, deserve some study to see, well, was it a realistic dream or was it a or pipe, was dream, it a pipe dream and a fantasy? Uh, because uh, old, older societies have um, deep roots and tendencies and cultural, I, I don't know, acceptable ways of behavior right. that aren't changed overnight. Absolutely. And so... And it's not necessarily that they need to be changed. It may be that there's, and again, I'm not, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, th I would say that they are trying to find their own path in terms of technology and modernization. And, um, you know, we, we, I talked about this a little bit earlier today about terms of the book, because in this period, say, 2000 to 2013, there was a sense of internationalization of technology sure. um, and the globalization of technology. And that process has stopped, not just with the Russians, but with Chinese and, um, and, uh, and others, I think. So, uh, you know, how innovation is going to get done in the future, um, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer right. to that. Yeah. I, I want to get to your book, Hammer yeah. and Silicon. Thank you so much for the presentation, by the way. I think this is such an important book because I think, as you said at the very beginning, I, I think these are critical stories that are not really getting outside of you know the, the people of our interest or, even, or really the diaspora community uh, very, very well. I know that there's one fascinating project that I'm a huge fan of called uh, Ruski norm, which literally just means Russians are okay, Russians are normal. <laughs> and it's this fantastic business journalist who goes around and does YouTube interviews with these highly uh -huh. successful people who are exactly the people you talk about um, uh, uh, in the book. And so I'm just so glad, first off, that 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 this was this was written. Yeah, um, yeah. well, thank you. Thank you. I, I liked your approach of kind of, you know, just taking a very methodical, historical approach to really contextualizing all of these things, and we hear a lot about the three waves. My, the question that kept coming up for me is that, did you find any specific, whether technical or really more psychological uh, peculiarities or unique qualities of the three of the three immigration waves? You mean the differences between the three? Yeah, so it was like, oh, not knowing their birth year, for example. Right. 
uh, he somebody said something in an interview. Oh, that's so unique and peculiar to this to the second wave, for example, or the, or the first uh-huh, wave. Uh-huh. Was there anything like that, or not necessarily? So the first wave, which is uh, from seventy two to nineteen eighty six. They were in a purely Soviet system, sure. and their frame of reference is purely Soviet. So if you went to, and people have told me, you go to Brighton Beach in New York, that they're, it's like stepping back into the past because it's a reduplication of that culture of that time. It's a way of eating, a way of socializing, I've been there and so I can attest to right. that. Yeah. Okay. So by the second wave... Uh, by the second wave, which is 89 to 2000, you had people who, um, was, it's much more diverse. Right. Um, people don't, they, they may live near each other, but they haven't formed that same kind of insular community. Right. Um, and I think for them, they stand between, many of them stand between two worlds and as I think we talked about, for many of them, their social life is around Russian-speaking institutions and theater and um, movies and uh, music and friends. And their professional life is integrated into a much broader community. So mm-hmm. they're in a different uh, position. Um, and the third, you know wave 2000 to 2014 those are people who grew up in russia not in the soviet union and the they have a different there's an impact of the soviet union in Mm -hmm. terms of the education system but they're they've traveled extensively uh they vacationed in the maldives they've um been around the world they're very different in in worldly um and and many times more self-confident about being Russian wow. and less defensive about wow. it. You know, interesting. Fascinating. So, yeah, I, I do want to talk about that third group specifically. How how many of them? I guess two questions. How many of them came for political reasons to the United States? What that kind of mm. the political situation in Russia was a major reason why they came. Again, talking about this third group. Right. And and then the second question is how I don't know if this is something you asked them, but did any of them think considered returning to Russia at some point in the future, or did most of them feel like, based off what they've seen, they want to be in the United States? Yeah. Um, mm, okay. So first question: Are they political refugees? Yeah. Um, and I would say almost none of them okay. were. Um, so they came for personal reasons. They came for education. They came for business opportunity. Again, the ones we interviewed. Um, and and it wasn't it it wasn't until whatever 2011 when there was any hint of of them coming for political reasons um there wasn't there didn't see the necessity of it sure um so the question of return so there are some people who uh, we interviewed who consider themselves to be global Russians, meaning wherever they live, they circulate around the world and they go back and forth and they collaborate with colleagues there. And uh, it's no big deal where they live. Sure. There's one of the people we interviewed 
uh, and he actually, he was a very early pioneer in the uh, software industry, uh, moved back. He felt more at ease there. Mm -hmm. And he was nearing retirement. And so he wanted to be a, in an, a welcoming environment for right. him. But he's the only one I know of. Um, some of them have traveled back uh, for conferences, for uh, joint activities or research with colleagues, that kind of thing. Uh, but very few indicated they wanted to move back. Um, you know, they, they're more likely to want to move their parents here or, you know, or keep a relationship with people, but not to move back. So I was interested in the part of the book, and then you also mentioned this in the 2014 article, where you talk about the how important institutions are to mm -hmm. fostering innovation and the triple helix right. that supports those of right. universities, the government, and business. Yeah. Um, do you see any particular, I don't want to say weakness, but maybe area that is the most in need of development to foster innovation within that? Helix currently within Russia and former Soviet states? Yeah, that's a very interesting conversation as well. Um, so the triple helix is um, Henry Eskovitz, as is his, he developed this theory. And there are people uh, in, in Russia who I know who were very taken with it, uh, particularly in Tomsk. Um, and they, they actually uh, published a Russian translation of his book. And uh, then there's a Triple Helix Society, and there was a conference in Tomsk uh, with him and with others. So, so I was part of that conference um, right. with him. Um, and I think that um, if, if I am correct, that Etzkovitz believes that at different historical points, different elements of that triad are more primary. And he believes that in the innovation age, the universities are more primary because they are able to, to develop intellectual capital and, and they're much more flexible right. than the other institutions. Um, but universities in Russia are not in that position. <laughs> um, the government is the dominant part uh, of that equation. Right. Uh, business is second and universities are third. Um, and universities haven't uh, been able to play a leading role in commercializing technologies. They yeah. um, passed legislation that's similar to our Bayh-Dole Act that allowed the universities to commercialize technology and own them. They didn't really know how to do that. And so they have uh, a lot of um, uh, zombie uh, companies um, hmm. that uh, were started with somebody had a bright idea about how to do something new and innovative, but the company never grew or fostered, and the university didn't know how to do that. Um, right. And so, you know, you know, so the business doesn't look to them for innovation. They look to them for training people for their requirements and as a pipeline of human capital, but not for um, new innovation. Yeah. So, 
Interesting. So then coming out of a system like that, how do you interpret the adaptation to the way things work within that helix triad uh, mm-hmm. on our side and the institutions that come with that? For example, something I have familiarity with uh, is the patent system, right. which is very different here, obviously, than it right. was under the Soviet Union, where right. you didn't have individual ownership of inventions like that. Well, they they actually they, one one of the interesting things when going there is we would we would go visit some institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences and and the and the person would say, well, I have twenty patents, and another one would say, well, I've got ten patents. Well, they had a patent system, they registered the patents, but those patents wouldn't be recognized anywhere else, and since they were published already, they couldn't be patented on, in a, on another system. So they'd actually. Um, ruined their opportunity to to sure. to commercialize that technology Existed by limbo. Yeah. So I was just wondering how um, adapting to the more university focused system went for these Soviet immigrants. Oh, them coming here. Yes. Ah, I see. I see. Well, actually, um, uh, a lot of the. A number of people we talked to were scientists and researchers and who were used to the Soviet system in which if you're a scientist, you did science. That's what you did. Right. And, uh, and, and they talked about how many of them at first sort of rejected this idea of business, that business was dirty uh, and beneath them. And But being in an environment where their colleagues were – getting involved with business, they gra- gradually began to consider it yeah. until it became more of a norm. And then they uh, became much more engaged with it. It has to do with the environment that you're in, in which people around you are looking for um, practical applications for your science. It's not just fundamental science. It's how, what do I do with this science? So once you start asking that question, then you verge towards, well, do I commercialize it? And the di- part of the difference is, is if you're a scientist here and you have something worthwhile, it's a whole system to support you. You don't right. necessarily have to stop being a scientist. You don't have to know all the ins and outs of raising capital. You don't need to know the patent system. You know, you're, the office in the university is going to help you right. get a patent. They're going to evaluate whether you should try to patent it. Um, they may point you towards funds to get you to a proof of concept or, um, you know, a, a prototype. So there's a whole gradation of system that you're part of that doesn't exist there. Right. Um, and so these immigrants sort of fell into this system and many of them have then, you know, engaged in it and become quite successful at it. I, I have a question related to this. It's kind of a strange question, so I'll try to express myself clearly. We've kind of said that in the Soviet Union, there was kind of a cult of science, mm-hmm. as it's cult called. And many of them, most of them maybe had this perception of business being this other kind of dirty thing. Were there was there anybody who expressed the opposite that they were they, that they were actually fascinated by this? Uh, I guess in the United States we would call it a cult of entrepreneurship or a cult of uh, innovation and kind of business culture. Did any of them, if we're specifically if we're talking maybe about really any of the three groups, yeah, um, quite the opposite. Said that wow, I was 
from a young age or whenever, I was interested immediately in this whole comparing the innovation and business entrepreneurial environments. And that's the reason I, I wanted to come or something. Uh, that's also a difficult question to answer. There were uh, people who uh, we interviewed who, particularly during Perestroika, got involved with co-ops and small-scale business uh, as it became possible to do that. And um, they accumulated some business experience through through their work there. And um, some of them even even by uh, I can remember one person who was involved with importing computers when that became possible. And he developed uh, a business, a very successful business, and which allowed him to then take that experience and come to the US with that experience. Um, so there were there were people who became, but later, later, later became entrepreneurs and then came here. And, you know, um, there was, of course, uh, for the Russian software industry, uh, for software outsourcing, you had to have a foreign client base. You couldn't, you, so those companies were built on the idea that you were going to go and establish this sales office in the U.S. and have your crack, Cracker Jack uh, computer programmers at home that do the work. Um, and you had to develop that skill set to operate within this, um, this marketplace. And it took a while for them to learn how to operate within the marketplace. But they did. They learned very quickly uh, how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I know that you said they covered quite an extensive amount of stories yeah. in this book. Are there any one or two that really struck you as like ex exemplary examples? And that's a <laughs> double using a word. <laughs> exemplary I know examples. That, I know that you said that the original book length was almost twice the original. Just right. Because yeah. the, 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 stories the stories were involving. Yeah. 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 You kind of put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, we definitely um, did. The interviews were split between the three of us. All the California interviews were done uh, by Professor Sheila Puffer. And I did even some of them. I referred her to some of the people. But I did, I did ones in Cambridge. Uh, in Boston. So those are the ones that uh, made the most impression on me. It's difficult to give you a specific story. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a company called um, uh, P Parametric Technologies, a PTC, that was the first CAD CAM uh, program in the U.S. They developed the first CAD CAM uh, do you know what CAD CAM I, is? I don't know what a CAD CAM no. is. Uh, Computer-assisted design. Whoa. Um, oh, okay. So they did the first computer-assisted uh, design system. It was wow. developed by this uh, Ukrainian immigrant uh, who came to the U.S. in the first wave. And he started the company, and then he started hiring other uh, immigrants to work in the country in the company because of their um, their mathematical skills, right. and one of the guys that I interviewed, I wasn't able to interview the founder of the company, but one of the guys that I interviewed was one of the first employees, and he talked about really not knowing much English, not knowing much, but that they 
they were familiar with the engineering concepts that the guy was incorporating and adapting to this environment. And it became a hugely successful company that's wow. still, it's still, it's, it was then called Parametric Technologies. Now it's PTC. The, the particular guy I interviewed, I think he was, he then went and developed a company called Autodesk, which was a pretty big uh, software company, uh, which, you know, was sold and other people uh -huh. developed it further. But so, uh, and there was uh, another guy that, I don't know if you, you probably way before your time, but um, uh, Apple had a device called a Newton. that was a handheld device and it had, you could write on it. It had it had hand rise, handwriting recognition software right. huh. it's like that a was Palm Pilot or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was written by the a Russian guy. Wow. And uh, and and this was in the late eighties, uh -huh. and when in the nineties, and when there was a chaos around the collapse of the Soviet Union, Apple made him and his team move to the U.S because they wanted to make sure they had them yeah. that yeah. resource here because <laughs> right. they didn't know what was going to happen right. there right. um so he was that was that was an interesting one um there was a guy um that I didn't interview for the book because he's a, he he still was in St. Petersburg but his he had a sound processing technology which he could never he tried to uh, sell it in the U.S. through some cousin or schoolmate who lived in right. Cleveland, and a complete failure. <laughs> and then he it got incorporated in uh, this um, uh, Radio Shack had a mobile internet phone that you could plug in. Well, some Israeli entrepreneur understood how to work with Radio Shack and took his technology and incorporated it in this product, which then became a kind of mass market consumer product through Radio Shack. So there were instances for some of the entrepreneurs like that where they couldn't penetrate the market but if they became part of a product then then they could do it these were you know sort of below the radar contributions to technology that were built into other um other products um that um there's this is a story not well told So I think a good place to end on would be, I'm, I'm just curious, so you finished this book, what, right. what, what's next for you? Uh, what's, what's the project you're kind of okay. uh, ready to move on? All right, on so, so two, I have two. So one, I am editing um, a book written by a Russian uh, colleague, friend of mine, on uh, pricing of natural gas. Russia is the world's largest natural gas supplier. Fascinating topic. So, so we're working on that. Um, and then the the one that I would like to write is about the interaction between Americans and Russians in Russia in the 1990s, eight, late 80s and 90s. Wow. Because there were real interactions between uh, normal, everyday people and a massive scale. At one point, 
probably 250,000 expats lived in Moscow wow. and and then scattered around the country. And and there was also a lot of Russians who came to the U.S. under U.S. government programs and formed an opinion about the U.S., not always the opinions that the program expected them to form. And so this was a, a period of incredible interaction between the two, which I think is some background to the present. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I would like to uh, write a similar book about that. Wow. That, that's a fascinating topic. And I know that some of, for example, a person who came to mind who you should maybe reach out to is a person named Mark Palmer, who was the head of Radio Liberty Radio Free Europe. Uh, around during that time and was also very active in, in Russia in the, in the 90s. And that's somebody who would be fascinated by yeah, this yeah. project. I just wanted to thank you. I think both of us. Uh, yeah, thank, uh, you. Want to no, thank you. Thank you. It's a great opportunity on. for me and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation yeah. and hopefully it'll be useful to the listeners. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lara Taropin. I am a first-year dual-degree grad student here at UT Austin. I am enrolled in the LBJ Global Policy Studies program, and I am in the Greece program as well. Welcome to the show and the podcast family. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Have you recorded before? I did some big high school recording. Is that what you were telling me before? I used to dabble in, you know, broadcast journalism. Yes. My old high school had its own news station. So wow. I was that guy yeah. like behind the cameras. And at some point I started commentating for swimming and water polo. I'm not very good at water polo, but boy, I can say, oh yeah, he is like, uh, working the corner. He's working the corner How there. How does swimming uh, commenting go? He's going straight. And then he's going the other way. He turned around. <laughs> There's a lot of collar commentary of like, oh yeah, he's been looking really strong this year. Good arms, good good leg work, good leg work today. Yeah, he's working great. Oh man, look at that, look at that splash behind it. He's working it, and yeah, he did it. He it did. No That's done. That was a great race, great race, good job, everybody. It's very objectifying, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, you can't really see a whole lot, so there's not a whole lot to talk about. Well, I assume you're not focusing on uh, swimming, commentating in Russian history. Where are your main focuses looking like? <laughs> uh, right now, um, what I've kind of been using as my elevator pitch is that I want to focus more on rather than looking at Russia from, you know, a government point of view, at, at Putin, at its overarching relations with the U.S. I want to look more at the people. Um, I come from a nonprofit background. I worked a lot with um, exchanges. A lot of them were grassroots, like bringing over, let's say, like engineers from England to come to the U.S. to see how different companies manage certain things or like agriculture like programs, stuff like that. Um, and I noticed that there's not a whole lot happening with Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, we had two whole programs and it were mostly just government internships. And I feel like we could do more. And especially coming, I'm from Moldova, so I have family back there and just seeing that they've never even had that opportunity to imagine the U.S. from just a person-to-person -person point of view, I think is really, really important. Um, and I've also just been really fascinated with that sort of dissonance of the opinion of Russian people and their government and what they're actually thinking. Like on one hand, how do you have it that, you know, Putin has an 80% approval rating and you, you turn around and you have protests in the streets right. and 
you know, that whole thing. So that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about. It's, it's three weeks in. We'll see if that yeah. keeps. Do, do you have any plans to go to Russia in the, in the future? I've been to Russia. Um, I've been back to Moldova twice. I'm from uh, Pridnistrovia, sure. so that's fun. Yeah. Um, and I've been to Moscow once, um, but it was... It, it was back in 2009, um, so it's, it's been a, a while. lot of change. It's a very different world, yeah. Um, I have to say, I didn't really like Moscow too much. I also didn't like it that when we left a week later, apparently the police came to the apartment that we were staying at and were asking for us. I didn't like that. Mm. So whoa, 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 <laughs> I feel serious. like it'll only get worse from here right yeah, now. Yeah, geez. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, there are a lot of elevators in grad school, so I'm sure that pitch will change over time. <laughs> but that sounds very exciting. Yeah, thank you. I have three years to work on it. Check awesome. back with me yeah, later. Cool. We're excited looking, to have you Looking on. forward to working with you. Thank, thank you, guys. 